So as we know, this is this is a very familiar psalm to most of us, and uh, it really shows David's true heart of repentance and confession for the sins he has committed. And as y'all know, we we all commit sins on a daily and regular basis. But you know, true Christians, true Christians should be characterized by joy. Um, you know, not the joy that the world teaches us that waxes and wanes with the circumstances and the events in our life, but that true joy that comes from that relationship with God. And in that relationship with God, we understand who God is, that he is sovereign over each and every one of those circumstances in our lives. And knowing that, we know that those circumstances are placed there for our good and for his glory. And that includes the circumstances that we feel are not in our best interest, but they truly are. <clears throat> so that's where our true joy comes from, is our relationship with the one true God. And because as Christians we have that faith in Christ, uh, we treasure him above all other things, uh, and he places the Holy Spirit in us, um, why do we sometimes not have that joy? How do we lose that joy? Where does it go to? And why? Well, it's pretty clear that a lot of times it's not God that takes the joy away from us, but it's we sin against a holy God. And then that breaks that relationship, not breaks it completely, but it distances us from the God that wants that relationship with us as well. So when we when we do sin against God as well, we God places this um, we should and we can feel remorse. We should and we can feel guilty for our sin. You know, Jesus said in, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those that mourn, you know, they will be comforted. And in that, he's speaking of those that mourn over their sin. Those are the ones that are blessed. Those are the ones that take their sins seriously and mourn over them. So, so mourning or feeling guilty over our sin or uh, what Paul described as godly grief, grief in 1 Corinthians is important that we do that because many churches today teach don't teach that they don't teach to grieve over your sin they don't even like to speak of sin because they'll say something like um, well they're all forgiven anyway so you don't need to beat yourself up over the fact that you sin we're all sinners just kind of go with it. You know, they want to kind of keep the negative vibes out of there. But but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we should grieve over our sin. We should mourn over our sin. And as Paul teaches us in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, there's a purpose for that. As you recall, in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church had many sins, and Paul was correcting most of them. But in 1 Corinthians, he mentions a letter that he had written to them before uh, convicting them of certain sins. We don't know what they are, but that letter had that intended purpose for the Corinthians. He says in verse 9 of chapter 7, he says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, a godly sorrow for that so that you suffered no loss to us. And then verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas a worldly grief produces death. 
So what he's saying there is, is this godly grief is a grief that we mourn over our sin. We take them seriously that we have offended a holy God. And that is, and that produces repentance when we do that. If we have a worldly grief, it's like we know we did it. We are sorry we got caught. We don't, you know, come to God with them in, conf in confession and repentance. Um, and that produces death. That does not, uh, that does not restore your relationship with God at all. So, <clears throat> and the longer that this sin goes on, and the longer that we do not address it, um, it tends to steal our joy. It steals our joy because it separates us, it separates us from, from the God uh, that wants us to relate with him in a, in a very intimate way as well. So since we all sin and we all tend to distance ourselves from God because of that sin, what's the solution to it? And the solution to it is what David does here in Psalm 51. He comes to God, he confesses his sin, he repents of his sin, and he does it in a uh, very biblical, a very... Um, honest manner because you know confession a lot of times in the uh, in the catholic church is nothing more than uh well number one it's a it's a sacrament it's something that the church tells you you have to do once a year in order to be saved it's a work and you have to confess it to a priest um and the reason they made it once a year was in the year 1200 when they met for a council they people weren't repenting of their sins. People weren't confessing of their sins until right before death. So they wanted to change that. They wanted to, because they considered that a work and a way to work yourself to heaven or really get to purgatory and then someone's got to pray for you a lot and then you go to heaven. But, but because that is the way it is, they, they made this edict, which is now a law in, in the Roman Catholic tradition. You have to uh, you have to confess once a year. Uh, that's called the uh, uh, the sacrament of penance as well. Um, but we don't do that because we understand God. And, and as mature uh, Christians, and, and you can you'll notice this in many mature Christians when they pray, the they pray no matter if they're praying a prayer of confession or any type of prayer, they will typically at the beginning express their unworthiness to a God. They will know who they are, they know who God is, and they will express that as well. They will come from a humble, from a, a broken, contrite type heart, which is what God wants us to do as well. Um, even those that we would consider the most righteous of people, uh, such as Isaiah in chapter 6, remember when he came into the presence of God, he, he said, what do you mean? I'm a man of unclean lips. He goes, I'm unclean. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. He goes, and not only that, I come from a people of unclean lips. We're all that way as well. So even the most righteous will acknowledge that fact that we are unworthy, uh, that we are unclean. We uh, are not worthy to be in the presence of God. And Paul, who we would consider... Uh, a very righteous man, certainly, certainly after his conversion. Before that, he was a murderer and a blasphemer. But, uh, but he, you know, he said in Romans 7, you know, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
He understands his inner wretchedness that we all have as well. So coming to God in prayer, we must first acknowledge our unworthiness, like David does here, we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, and then even our prayers that we do sometimes are tainted because we are fallen, because we are unworthy, because we do have our fallen nature in it. So they can be tainted as well, too. And we can be praying for things that we think are very worthy. Uh, certainly, we want to pray for people for healing and various things that sound good for people's salvation. But we have to realize even those are tainted somewhat with our fallen nature. So our true worship must begin with who we are, unworthy to a holy God. But it must also end with who God is, a sovereign God. And he will act on those prayers according to his good pleasure and his will. So that would be pure worship. We don't come to uh, we don't come to God like the Pharisee did in Luke 18, where he said, "You know, God, I'm not like that other guy over there. You know, I I, I do my tithing, you know, and I uh, I fast twice a week, and you know, because of that, you know, that's why I'm praying that she should answer my prayer. Now we come more like that tax collector. He says." Bows down, God have mercy on me, a sinner. He knows he's got nothing when he comes to God in prayer. And that's how David felt in this as well. And he gives us a very, very clear picture of what that looks like, what that confession, that repentance looks like. Now, we know David is a man after God's own heart. That he's said many times in Scripture as well. One of the people that we look up to. But again, he's just a man. He's just a man. And David wrote many psalms. Uh, and you know, as we know, the psalms are songs that we sing. They're songs of worship. They're songs of praise. But he also knew the wretchedness of his own heart as well, too. And what's interesting about this song is here about this psalm that he writes here is it's a it's a song of confession for his sins. That you know, most of us we might confess our sins to ourselves, or we might confess our sins in private in the closet. But David does it and writes a song about it for all to see, for all to, it's for our edification, for this is how we confess our sins to God. Uh, again, not like the Roman Catholics, with, which is more of a, a work type thing to do, but a true confession, a true repentance, understanding uh, who God is and who, who we are as well, too. So... Um, so the sins that are committed by you and I, we're going to do that till we die, right? Uh, so it's more, most, most important that we confess and repent from those sins. Um, in Luke 22, uh, as you recall, when, when Peter was walking with Jesus, um, and this is while Jesus is still on the earth, and Peter really hadn't done his really bad sin yet of denying Okay, Jesus said to him, he says, uh, But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So when he repents from this sin, when he turns, the purpose of that is to strengthen others. And Pauline says this in Timothy uh, about his conversion, about his confession and repentance. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So his purpose of, uh, of 
repentance of confession of becoming a Christian as a really the chief of sinners as he calls himself was for others for others that's the purpose of it as well and again as David even though he's a man after God's own heart he, we know he had many problems he had a woman problem okay he had many women problems as a matter of fact he had a lot of wives he seemed to pass that down to Solomon Solomon had even more as well and you know what those wives did all they did was was draw them away from the true God to worship their gods as well. So that's one of many problems. But but the specific sin that he is confessing and repenting of in this particular psalm is the one we've heard of with Bathsheba. As you, as you recall, it goes like this. David, who should be out at war with the rest of the troops, is at home, sitting in a castle, sitting on the roof, looking out. Sees Bathsheba, who... I don't know what she's doing bathing on a roof, but maybe that's what they did then. But maybe she wasn't innocent in this as well either. But anyway, David influences his power as king, calls her to him, has sex with her. She gets pregnant. Okay? Now David's in a dilemma. And he, to cover it up, he calls Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, as you recall, calls him back from the front lines to tell him, you know, go home and see your wife for a while. Hoping that, you know, they'll have a relation, they won't know who the baby is, things like that. That was kind of his first solution. But as you recall, Uriah was very, he didn't do that. He was very, um, he followed David as a good soldier would, and he stayed on the, on the doorstep of the palace. And so once David realized he wasn't going to go home, he concocted this, uh, uh, this way to murder him. He didn't murder him directly, but he sent him back to the front lines with orders that that they should engage this company and then everyone that's around Uriah will fall back and that's in essence leaving him um, exposed and he killed. And that was all David's plan. And that happened and that took place. So then David wanted to um, you know look honorable, takes in his widow, Bathsheba, uh, and then for nine months, the next thing we hear is, you know, he has the baby. And uh, David has no repentance. You, you don't even hear everything's kind of hunky-dory. goes along just like David planned. So David's thinking, you know, I don't know what he's thinking, but he's probably getting thinking I got away with it. Um, until God sends Nathan the prophet <clears throat> to uh, confront him with his sin. As you recall, that was uh, at that point then, which was after the baby was already born, um, he, uh, he tells them what happened in, in uh, 1 Samuel 12, 13. Uh, Nathan says this to, to uh, David. He says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. So he's telling David, you know, this is a sin, and you're gonna, there's consequences. You're going to pay for it from now on. The sword will never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Uh, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. So David's problems are going to be primarily from his offspring, from those in his own house as well, too. Then verse 13, he said, David said, David said back to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So he's not going to pronounce immediate judgment on him. He says, Nevertheless, though, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. 
So the consequences of his sin were the sword will never leave his house, the child who was born will die, okay? And not only that, David will have many, many more children, and there's going to be a lot of problems in his house. There's going to be incest, there's going to be rebellion, and most theologians point to this sin as the one that is the beginning of the division of Israel because it was such a uh, exposed sin that all the nation knew um, that even though the, the nation didn't split till some years later, most, um, most theologians kind of point to that as well, and I can see why. <clears throat> so in this, in this um, psalm then, uh, David, if you kind of look at overall of it, David is now in a, in a confession mode. He, he feels dirty. Uh, he feels unclean. You know, he wants to be, um, uh, he wants to be made clean again. That's kind of his, uh, his feelings that he puts into that. And so in this, he kind of gives the, the, uh, the evidence or the biblical, uh, uh, evidence of what it looks like to truly confess your sins in a, in a manner that God wants as well. Um, so he shows a uh, just our perspective. We can learn from that as well too. So so there's really kind of three aspects of a true confession to God, a true confession repentance, and these are pretty clear and we should know these. But number one, we must see our sin for what it is. We must have a right view of sin. Not something we just pass over, but what it is. A serious offense against God's law. Number two, we need to see God who, for who He is as well. We need to understand He is a holy God uh, as well. And number three, we need to see ourselves as who we are. Who are we, are. Who are we in the inside? Who are we as a person? Who are we born as as well too? So if, let me repeat those again. We need to see our sin for what it is. We need to see God for who he is. And we need to see ourselves for who we are as well. And so David understood these. And they come out in his, in his, uh, in his confession in Psalm 51 here. So he starts off, and David understands, um, he understands sin for what it is. If you'll, and, and it made him feel dirty, made him feel unclean. He wanted to be clean. So if you look in verse 2, he says this, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, and in verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew that right spirit. So he feels dirty, he feels unclean, he feels unworthy to approach God. So kind of four aspects that he that show us how David has the correct perspective on what sin is and shows that he has an accurate assessment is number one that sin deserves judgment sin deserves judgment you know the um, <clears throat> if you look at verse four um, the second half just the whole thing it says against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So he's saying to God, I've sinned. You're right. You have the right to judge me. You're blameless. You know, I, I did it. You know, you have the right to judge me. He understands that sin deserves that judgment as well. 
As you recall, Nathan said he didn't judge him right then by taking him out of the world, but he chastised him by the by everything that happened after that as well. <clears throat> so we forget, you know, that, that God, one of God's attributes is he is just, and we forget that his, when we sin against him, that we deserve his justice. And again, many churches don't, they don't want to go there with that. They just said, you're forgiven, skip over it, don't worry about it. Um, don't feel guilty, don't beat yourself up over it. Well, now, again, like we talked about, that's not exactly what the Bible teaches us to do. We should feel guilty, we should remorse. That is a purpose in that as well, too. So, number one, sin deserves judgment. And so, since we can't appeal to God's justice, because when we sin, we appeal to his mercy. Because that's really all we have to appeal to, right? We can't appeal to, to our justice because we don't want what we deserve, really. Uh, we want what we want. And you know, when, when, in, in verse 1 he says, um, he, he just starts off by that, Have mercy on me, O God. And according to your steadfast love and your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You know, take away my sin that I've done. Um, you know, he doesn't say something like, well, you know, God, I've done a bunch of good things for you. You know, can you just kind of let me off on this one here? He doesn't try to balance it and say, you know, the good's going to outweigh the bad. <clears throat> no, he, he appeals to his mercy. He appeals to his mercy, which is all we can do. And the judgment that we get from sinning, the judgment that God will place on us, is different for a believer than for an unbeliever. For example, when an unbeliever sins, the judgment that he places on him will be an eternal judgment. Right? He has no one to cover that judgment for. Him. But as believers, when we sin, yes, we still have that judgment, but it's in the form of uh, chastisement. It's in the form of discipline. It's in the form of what happened to David? You know, the sword never left his house. The baby died. Things happened. God will discipline you to bring you back to him as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Number three, he, he understands that the guilt and his sin are his and only his. Okay, if you look in verse two and three, he says this. Um, or actually, it starts out in, in the end of verse two. Blot out my transgressions. Uh, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me and I have done and I have I sinned and have done evil in your sight so he understands that he is responsible for his sin and then in verse 3 I like what he says my sin is ever before me so he's, constantly, he's always continually aware of that sin that he has. And some people may say, well, that's not good because now you're, 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 you're going to beat yourself up over. You're going to feel guilty all the time. But, but no, that is something that also is helpful and that will drive you back to God. Because if we understand our sin and we're continually uh, contemplating it, it humbles us. Okay? It, um, it helps us guard against temptation and doing that sin again. Uh, and it really makes uh, us much, much more grateful for the cross that has taken away the, the judgment that that sin deserves as well. 
So like I said, this is similar to that. He accepts responsibility for his sin. He doesn't blame anybody else. He doesn't blame his circumstances. It's my sin, my transgressions. He, he uses pretty much every word for sin that he can think of in verses 2 and 3. My iniquity, my sin, my transgressions, um, evil. Uh, all those words are, are sin. And he accepts responsibility and he says they're mine. He doesn't blame, again, his circumstances. He doesn't um, uh, blame anybody else. You know, we're all pretty good at, at doing that, uh, blaming other people for things that we should take responsibility for. Uh, he doesn't even blame Satan, you know, and a lot of people, you know, remember the devil made me do it, Flip Wilson back there. You know, that's, you know, Satan may tempt you and I, but we sin and we accept responsibility. So when we come to God in confession and repentance, you know, don't don't uh, don't minimize that confession by by not taking full responsibility for it. It is us. It is our sin. We commit them. Uh, you know, not like Adam. You know, he said when God came up to him and he said, "Did you eat that thing? Did you eat that? Uh, did you do what I told you not to do?" And Adam says, "We well, you know the woman you gave me kind of." gave it to me. And then Eve said, she was the same way. She goes, well, the serpent tempted me and told me it was okay. You know, that's not the way we confess our sins. It is our responsibility. David understood that. David falls before God because of that as well. And David understood quite well who he was. But if you look in verse 5, um, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now again, that's not a verse saying that his mother had an illegitimate affair and uh, was born out of wedlock or anything. Because in the in many of the Psalms, David speaks of his mother as a godly woman, as a as a child of God. The statement here is to uh, to say this that that David acknowledges that he's been a sinner since the day he was born. Um, although he um, uh, and, and he should have. And he did know that, but he's kind of almost saying to himself, I, I should have known I had that nature to commit adultery. I should have taken some safeguards against it because that's just the way I am. So even, you know, his, his, this isn't a, speaking of David's mom and being illegitimate because his mom was a, uh, was a child of God, a child of grace, but, but she was a descendant of Eve, uh, just like he is a descendant of Adam. And so that... That is what we refer to as original sin. That's the, the sin, the original sin, the one that happened before you or I ever did sin. But it's that sin that Adam did before God that now he passed down to everyone who is a descendant of Adam. Everybody here a descendant of Adam? We all have it. That's the nature that he's talking about. It's that nature that we, it's so evident, we talk about it all the time. It's passed on. It, you can call it congenital depravity, which means you know, you're born with it. It's the way you are. Um, and, and, it's, and it's manifested so well in, in children, not to make children, but you don't have to teach children to be bad. You don't have to teach them to disobey. No, you got to teach them to obey, right? So that is, that, is their, that is what they're born with as well. And it's the same thing that we have in us that even for... Us that have been regenerated by Christ and have the new heart, it's the part of us that's, that kind of backslides every now and then. 
And we all have that as well, too. Um, and it's the part that in an unregenerate, someone who's without Christ, it's that part that drives them to uh, eternal hell as well, too. So our heart is deceitfully wicked. It is in there. It stays in there. Um, and the flesh is no help. So, so David accepts, David understands his sin. He understands his sin deserves judgment. He accepts responsibility for it. He prays for mercy to God. He, he, he relies only on that. Um, and that is what he refers to in verse 17 as a broken and contrite heart. He understands who he is. He understands his sin. He takes responsibility for it. He, he, he's not prideful in it at all. Uh, that is what it refers to as a broken, contrite heart, which is what God wants. But just knowing our sin, just recognizing our sin, and just recognizing who we are doesn't really help us when it comes to confession. Our hope lies in who God is and the God that we are confessing to as well. So it doesn't stop with our recognition, but, but it, it, it is our hope in God. And if you look in verse 6, he says this to, to God, Behold, you, God, delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So God desires inward holiness, an inward change from who we were before. He doesn't just want to give you a 12-step program to change your attitude, to change your, uh, the things you do, to change your behavior. No, he wants to change it from the inside. That's what he desires. So before you murder, he wants to take away that hate in your heart. Before you commit adultery, he wants to take away that lust in your heart. And before you steal, he wants to take away that covetousness in your heart. So it's not just a matter of changing our behavior on the outside. God wants to change us from the inside. Change our desires. Change who we are. Change what we once loved and still down deep in there do love some things to something that is completely different than we want as well. So God desires the inward holiness, not just an outward change. Um, and then we have to also understand that God has the power to do that. Our God is a sovereign. He has the power to do that. He is omnipotent, right? He has all power. Um, and so he says there in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, which, by the way, is just a little branch that they use in Old Testament rituals to clean themselves uh, as well. But he says, Purge me with hyssop. If you purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So if you do that, you can do it. I, I believe you can do it. I know you can do it because you are God. Um, and if you do it, I'll be clean. If I do it by some sacrifice or ritual or a 12-step program to get better, I'm not going to be clean. So we have to understand God has the power to change that as well. Um, and then we must believe that God is willing to do that. I mean, we know our God is a forgiving God, is he not? That's also one of his many attributes, his steadfast love, his mercy. You know, he's also got wrath, he's got justice. Um, there, there are attributes that are on both sides of the equation that we like. But we have to understand when we come to God in confession and repentance, we've got to know that he's willing. I mean, we have to believe that he's willing to change us, right? 
If not, why why would we do it? Why would we have a confess if we don't think he's willing to do it? If we have a God that's sitting up there and, and is not going to forgive us, you know, then why would we pray for him as well? So we have to believe and must believe that God's willing to do that. And David knew that. And, you know, he wants restoration. In verse 8, he says, Let me hear the joy and gladness. Uh, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out my iniquities. Um, he wants restoration. He wants that pain of, of broken bones that... I guess he used this analogy because, and that kind of jumped out at me a little bit because I think broken bones probably hurt a lot, right? And so he wants that pain, um, he wants that to turn to rejoicing. He wants the bones that God broke uh, in his, um, uh, I guess, misery and his guilt at this time to do that. But we have to understand that, that God that God does forgive. God does forgive. Um, Psalm 86, 5 says this, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all those who call upon you. So we understand that, uh, and when he does forgive us, what does, he, what does he do with those sins? Where does he take them? Well, Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, away, completely away from us. That's so far as he removes those transgressions from us. So Matthew Henry said this in, um, in one of his commentaries. He says, when God pardons our sin, he cleanses us from it so that we become, number one, acceptable to him again. We are not unclean anymore, but we're clean. Okay, Easy to ourselves. Okay, He allays that guilt and that mourning that that uh, he gives us to drive us back to him. So that goes away as well too. And then liberty of access to him. So we restore that relationship um, that we have lost because our sin separates us from God. Um, so when we go to God in true confession, uh, when we pour out our heart to him, it's what he's waiting for. It's what he's waiting for. He's there. He's going to forgive it. You know the answer when you come to him in repentance and faith. You know what he's going to do. It's not an iffy thing. It's not an iffy thing. And then in verse 10 here, um, a song we sang as well, uh, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Um, you know, only God can do that. Only God can do that. He cannot... You or I cannot do that on our own. We, can, we can't really fix those problems uh, that we've been talking about. Um, I mean, he's, he's not there just to change our actions. Uh, he is there to create a new heart inside us as well, to change us from the inside out. And then in, um, in verse 11, as we, as we sang earlier too, it says, um, uh, Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now that doesn't mean that uh, we know as believers that God places that Holy Spirit in us. And that Holy Spirit is in us from now until eternity. That Holy Spirit, once we God saves us, we cannot lose that salvation, but we can lose our joy okay, by separating us from God. But really what this is talking about is if you consider the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was a little bit different, had a different function than it did in the New Testament. As you recall, the Spirit 
would come upon certain individuals like Samson or Saul, and the Spirit would come upon him, and, uh, and Samson would tear up the lion and stuff like that. Then the Spirit would depart for a while. Okay, and Saul, I said the Spirit came on Saul, and he prophesied for a while. As you know, the Spirit left Saul for a while. And David, once he was anointed as king by Samuel, you know, was given the Spirit in order to rule the kingdom in a godly manner. So he had that spirit in it. And so what David's saying here is, you know, don't take that away from me. You know, creating me a clean heart. I want to go back to serving you. Put that spirit in. I want to do it in a in a willing, it restore to me the joy of your salvation in verse 12, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Place that spirit back in me that I want to, not through any type of uh, force or anything like that. I want to be willing to serve you in any way I can. I want to get back to the way I was. That joy that your salvation has brought me, that joy that you have given me to to lead your people. Do not take that spirit away from me. That's that's what he's crying out to uh, to God to do that. So again, in verse twelve, he says, uh, "Rejoice to me that restore to me the joy of your salvation." Not my salvation, because it's of your, he understands that salvation is from God and only God. And as you recall, that we talked about sin earlier. Sin separates us from God, right? Um, but our true joy comes from God. So when we are, so when we sin, we can lose that joy. Okay, we will not lose a salvation that that relationship with God gives, but we will definitely lose lose that joy as David had lost that joy. He was guilty. He was unclean. He was asking for that back. He was asking for his broken bones to rejoice again instead of hurting him all the time. Um, so he, the purpose though is he, he's asking now for a willing spirit. A spirit for the purpose of verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So he wants that spirit back. He wants that joy back. He, he wants it for a purpose. He wants to serve God. Um, if some of you may, last week in Psalm 73, that's exactly what happened to the psalmist Asaph when he repented of that, that sin of envy, um, that sin of uh, uh, envy in the prosperous wicked. He said, then I will teach, I will uh, tell of your works. It's evangelical. You know, if someone, if, if God has done that and changed your life, created in you a clean heart, you want to tell people about it. You want to tell of his righteousness. And that, and he expands on that then in verses 14 and 15 to say, again, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So he, he again, he wants to, he wants to, he wants to serve God again in any way he can. Um, and in verse 14, blood guiltiness. I mean, that's exactly what it sounds like. He was guilty of murder. He was guilty of shedding blood on Uriah. Uh, what we would consider a major type sin, right? They're all bad, but that, that is something that really, uh, um, that really we would consider in our fallen way as one of the worst as well. And then he, uh, and then verses 16 and 17, he, he goes this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Uh, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. So what's he saying there? 
He's saying, um, God, you don't want my sacrifices. You know, David had everything. He could have sacrificed a million bulls or a thousand bulls or whatever was required of him. But he says, God, you don't want those sacrifices. You want my heart. You want to change my heart. You don't want to do anything. You don't want to just, you know, externally clean me up because you want my heart. As you recall, the Old Testament sacrificial system was never intended to forgive sins. You know, the blood of bulls and goats can't do that. Uh, and that, and that it, was, it was stand in place for a reminder to the children of Israel who and what took care of them. So the sacrifices were all to be given in a thankful manner, in an obedient manner. Uh, in memory, they were always supposed to give the uh, a lamb without blemish, one of the best ones they had, or the first fruits, the one, uh, and they do that in thankfulness to a God who has provided and protected them as well. Um, but it, it started changing and became more of a mechanical thing, and, and people were uh, doing the sacrifices because they were a have to, uh, or they were doing it because they wanted something from God, so they were doing it in an unworthy manner, in an unrighteous manner. They were always supposed to be done in, with thankfulness and obedience as well. Um, so he says there, no matter what those sacrifices are, that's, you know, I know you don't want that, you want my heart. You want my broken and contrite heart. Um, in Isaiah 57, uh, Isaiah speaks to that as well too. Um, he says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I believe that would be God. Um, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who was of contrite and lowly spirit. Goes, and in Isaiah 66, 2, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So he wants us to be humble. He doesn't, um, you know, a prideful heart. He will not accept. Uh, I think we know that. Um, so, um, I lost my last page here. All right. Um, so, uh, so that's what he wants. He knows that, that God wants his heart, and that's what he's offering to him, his heart. He's not offering him anything else that he can do. Um, so in verses 18 and 19, then he kind of sums it up by now um, interceding for his people. Uh, now that he... He feels like his heart is clean. He feels like he can go to God for his people like he did before all this happened, uh, before this uh, sin that he committed as well. So he prays for his people, uh, and he prays to, to even help them so that they can do the right sacrifices. So they will be sacrificing as well with a thankful heart uh, as well. So um, so really what, what, what uh, David does here is he... He gives us a kind of a prototype example on confession and repentance, how it is pleasing to God to do it this manner, not in any other type of way. Number one, he understands his sin. Okay, he understands that sin deserved judgment. Okay, and he and he takes responsibility for that sin. Okay, he takes responsibility for that sin. Um, and then he appeals the only way we can as humans to his mercy. He doesn't repeat, appeal to his justice or any attribute, just to his mercy and his love and his steadfastness. And he does that for the purpose of wanting him to change his heart from the inside out. He wants 
God to make us willing to serve him again, willing to, uh, to sing his praises, willing to be useful to him. Um, again, he doesn't want to just change our behavior. He wants to change us from the inside out. And then once he does that, his joy can be restored. His joy, that relationship we have with God uh, is, is restored again. We, we take joy in serving him. We take joy in being close to him as well. Um, so all of us need to do that. Um, we must confess, and we don't have to do it once a year. We do it really continually as well because we sin on a very regular basis. Uh, but we don't do it from a standpoint of pride. We don't do it just to change our uh, habits, our behavior. We do it uh, because we love him. We do it because we understand who he is and who we are as well. So let's pray. Father, we thank you again so much for, um, for your word. We thank you for David and his life and uh, the fact that he will write this down. He will uh, admit his sin. He will confess his sin to the world, to all who read this will understand uh, understand that and and we should use that as well too when we sin we um, not only uh, uh, offend you uh, we certainly offend others we uh, we give consequences from that but when we repent and confess those sins dear Lord we should we should also let that be known and that can be a lesson to others that we can learn from others as we learn from David as well dear Lord thank you for this time and the time of worship we love you and we praise you all in your son's name.